Welcome listeners to another episode of Listen, Learn, and Love hosted by Richard Osler. This is sometimes and oftentimes a really sacred place where um, a guest steps forward and shares um, sometimes a really painful and difficult life story and um, doing that with the hope that it will help others that are walking a similar road and those of us that want to support people that are dealing with immense tragedy and grief and um, with that sort of background, I'll introduce my guest joining us from her home in Nashville, Tennessee, Julie Clough. Welcome to the podcast, Julie. Thank you. So excited to be here and have this discussion with you today. About two or three or four weeks ago, I checked Facebook first thing in the morning. It's something I try not to do. And there was your post and it talked about a little bit of your story. And I just felt impressed to include your story and our next book that's coming out in the fall of 2023 and also to have you on the podcast um, so that more could connect with your work. Um, Julie's a mom of married mom of six kids, 11 grandkids, but two of those kids died in a car crash on mother's day in 2007, which was also your birthday weekend. And um, you were driving and fell asleep and um, two children died. It's sort of your worst nightmare as a mom. And you felt, and so Julie's going to share her story. She's written a book. We'll talk about the book she's written. She has a podcast with 177 episodes. She has an Instagram account called Build a Life After Loss. We'll talk about that. We'll link to this all in the show notes. But our prayers, this will help you if you're dealing with sort of immense grief and tragedy, or there's somebody in your family circle walking this road and you want to do the right thing to help them. And Julie, this is not theoretical, unfortunately for you. It's, it's real life. And with that, I'll turn it over to you to con- just start, if that's okay for an introduction. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, yeah, like you said, we have six children. We, we actually have a little unusual route to six children. Uh, my husband and I were both previously married. I had three children that I brought to our marriage. This year is our 30th anniversary. And so we we had th- I had three children, then we married, and then we had three more children, and we were raising all six kids together in um, a very um, idealistic, if you if you will, you know, home life, and really enjoying our kids and enjoying their experiences. We were, I was actually a homeschool mom. I was homeschooling my children. And uh, on that Mother's Day weekend, I had we were living in Texas at the time, and I had decided to take my three younger children. My three older children either had school or work obligations and, and didn't go with us, but my three younger children, James was 12 at the time, Carrie was 10, and David was 8. And we were traveling east to visit grandparents in North Carolina. And we got up early in the morning started on our trip. It was going remarkably well, which if you have any children, you know that sometimes those road trips don't go remarkably well, but it was just uh, going super well. The The younger kids were in the back seat, entertained with their toys and their food and their snacks. And my son, uh, James, was sitting next to me in the car and we were just really enjoying the day. The weather was gorgeous. About halfway through the afternoon, traveling through Mississippi, we were, I was expecting to make it to my destination before nightfall. We were traveling through Mississippi, and yeah, I fell asleep at the wheel, having never felt tired. Wow. I never felt tired that whole day. 
But I woke up in the median, bouncing along in the grass between the eastbound and the westbound lanes. And in my shock, I tried to bring my SUV back up on the highway. And when I did, I could feel, I felt the wheels lift up off the ground and we started to roll. And we rolled across two lanes of highway into the grass on the other side. And as we rolled, I lost my eyesight. I hit my head, um, lost my eyesight. And when we landed, I could hear my son James crying in the seat next to me. So I knew he was alive because that was always a question, right? When you have an accident like that. I knew he was alive, but I also knew he was hurt and I couldn't see. And I started calling for David and Carrie. And as I called for them, there was no answer. As my eyesight returned a few minutes later, I, I saw all the glass and all the destruction around me. And I saw that James was okay. He was hurt, but he was okay. But as I looked for Carrie and David, I didn't see them until I glanced off to the left and what felt like a football field away. I realized that they had, um, they had, they had been thrown from the car as we rolled and I was never able to get to them. I was, you know, physically, mentally, emotionally stunned and wasn't able to to leave the car, get to them. Ambulances arrived. And later that day, I found out that Carrie and David didn't make it, that they had died in the accident. Um, but there were also so many miracles that occurred that day. And the minute my eyesight came back, I, I knew, I knew in that moment, no matter what the results were, that our life had changed forever. And I remember having this feeling like if I could just take back five minutes, what could I do to turn back time five minutes? And of course, there was nothing. There's no answer to that. But it wasn't long afterwards that I realized that I had heard a voice as I rolled that said, bring in your arm. And I brought my arm in while the car, while the car rolled. And I have no idea how I paid attention to that. But somehow, miraculously, I, I heard that voice and I paid attention to that. Three months later, my uncle called me and he said, I just saw a woman on TV. She was a dancer and she lost her arm in a rollover accident. Three years later, I met a woman who had lost her arm in a rollover accident. And I, my gratitude for that impression to bring, it's so hard. It's so hard. Losing kids is like the, it's, it's crushing. It's, it's absolutely devastating. I, I I think about the blessing of having not also lost my arm. My wrist was fractured, but I had relatively minor injuries. And my son James, we we uh, were taken by ambulance to the hospital, and uh, and they came in a little while later and said he's he was going to need emergency surgery on his right leg. And it was a Sunday. And I overheard an intern saying, I can't believe that Dr. Rush is here. Now, just for a little bit of context, 
Dr. Rush actually was the doctor who developed the surgery that my son needed. Wow. (laughs) Another miracle that he had that level of care that the hospital we were at was actually called Rush Memorial. It was named after his, um, I can't remember if it was his father or grandfather. And, and to hear these, the, the workers around us talking about why is Dr. Rush even here? And I was like, I know why he's here. And there were so many more miracles that came with that because he advocated for us when we needed to leave the hospital. And there was other doctors that said, Hey, you know, James needs to stay here, but we needed to get home. And, um, and he advocated for us and he, he made that happen for us. He coordinated with doctors in Houston for James's continued care. So as time went on, like in the moment, you know, it's just, it's, it's just, your mind is just numb. It's just too much to take it all in. And, um, but as time went on and I reflected on all the miracles that happened, I saw how even in the moment of devastation, we were cared for. And, um, and I'm just eternally grateful for that. It's, you know, just moving to hear you share that. Um... I don't know if at the time you ever thought you'd talk publicly about this or ever be able to be in a place to write a book and um, talk about hope after grief. I love all the names you've used. Do you want to keep sharing your story? Um, I've got some questions, but I kind of, I don't want to, my feeling is just, I don't know if there's phases you go through. There's this, there's this, uh, just keep sharing, Julie, like you probably are used to doing. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, like I mentioned, it's just it's 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 overwhelming, you know, the 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 the, the whole piece. In some ways there was some there was a blessing in also being injured. You know, my my shoulders were sprained and and they seemed like really minor injuries for the circumstances, but my you know, my wrist was broken, was fractured and I was extremely sore and bruised as you can imagine from being in an accident like that and in some ways that was a another blessing because it it really um it helped me to to rest and to take care of myself and and to not um just just really be in that cocoon that was needed at the time. And and so many friends and family and so forth came to our aid, came to our, came to our bedside, you know, came to our, our home of grief. Uh, when, when we got home, it had been about a week after the accident by the time we actually came home. And even at the hospital, I had, I had aunts and uncles and, you know, my mom, my dad, my sister, my brother, my obviously my husband all came and and the the hospital amazingly they allowed my son and I to share a hospital room and it was a hospital room with like a little mini waiting room which was filled with our family 
I'm just so overwhelmed with all the miracles that occurred in our darkest hour. Um, and they made arrangements for us to drive home because that was going to be the best circumstances for our son to travel home. He um, he had a severely fractured leg that that needed a lot of healing. Obviously, had gone through some surgery. But we got home, and when we got home, our house had been cleaned, and um, our our homeschool friends had come in and planted flowers in our yard. Uh, we had a friend that took off our front door and resurfaced it. Wow. We had so every there were groups of my tennis friends, groups of our homeschool friends, groups of our church friends who organized meals. For what felt like the next six months, we were so well taken care of. Our neighbors, our neighbors, um, they actually went out and collected funds from those who wanted to help because they knew that, you know, financially it's a burden too to, to go through an experience like that. Um, this was before GoFundMe. <laughs> this was a this was a very grassroots effort, and they presented that to us. I, I, just the amount of service that was, uh, att- you know, that attended us was amazing. But we got home, and our home literally felt like a temple because of that service that we received, the love and the care, and I'm also very well aware because I've had those experiences too that sometimes in our grief we aren't well cared for we have to advocate for ourselves and sometimes that's the experience but in this particular experience we were well well cared for we had a funeral there were almost you know there were over 900 people there some who traveled across the country to be there friends work um, work associates who traveled long distances to be there to have a funeral for two children the funeral home donated two coffins to they, they basically they basically said we're not here in the business to make money on children who have died Wow. This was in Houston, Texas. And not only that, you know, their protocol was to offer a certain level of, um, you know, coffin for that, that type of situation. But in this case, they actually, they actually donated a pink coffin and a blue coffin. Mm. And it, it's, it's horrific to say coffin, um, tombstone, burial site when we're talking about our kids and 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 in our in our talking about children who died so often people say you know we should never lose our children first you know they should never go first which um i don't think is really helpful for us to to say because in fact sometimes children do pass away but that that beginning piece i felt so supported so loved so cared for and I knew from previous uh, 
grief experiences, from losing my brother, from going through a divorce, I knew that it was that it was going to be hard, that that this was all I could deal with right now, that it was okay for me to grieve. Like I was, I was in this space where I just knew that it was okay to to grieve. And I remember sitting on the back patio at my house, and I remember in that moment thinking, somehow I overcame the grief from losing my brother. Maybe it's possible that I can overcome this pain too. But at the time, I'm like, I, how that would happen was beyond me. But as time went on, and it just continued to be so, so hard. And I had PTSD from being the driver of the car. I went to therapy weeks after weeks after weeks of therapy. And about a year and a half later, I started feeling like I should be doing better. And that's when things got really dark. I feel like the adversary took hold of that and just pounded on that. You should be doing better. One of my first uh, appointments with a therapist that I didn't continue to see, it was just an early appointment that we took um, when we took our family a couple of weeks after the accident, just to kind of get some uh, thoughts and where do we go from here, had said, we choose to be happy or something to that effect. And... I understand that statement. I understand what that means. But in that moment, maybe the timing wasn't right, I would just say. And so a year, year, a couple years down the road, I was thinking, I can't choose to be happy. I don't even know how to choose to be happy. I, it's so, it was so foreign to me. I'm so disconnected from the experience that I was having that I just continued to beat myself up. Uh, not only that, but the tremendous guilt that I carried for being the driver of the car and watching my family suffer and knowing that I was the cause of that was tremendous and unbelievably painful. And I just continued to spiral down. I continued to spiral down until it became extremely dark. Extre I, there are no words to describe how dark I felt. Like it, I could, I literally could feel darkness within me. Like it was tangible. It was tangible. And. Uh, at about the two and a half year mark, remarkably, my bishop asked me to be the new young women's president. And I, I accepted. And I felt pretty good about accepting. And I actually, you know, it gave me something to focus on. And I had been young women's president before. So it was like, Okay, I, it was not totally unfamiliar territory. I loved the girls, but they were also my daughter's yeah. friends. Carrie would be young woman's age at this point. At that point, yep. And even one of her friends, when they called me, leaned over to her mom and said, isn't that too hard? Amazing that a 13-year-old girl recognized that. Wow. And for the first couple months, I just I just threw myself into it. I went into organization mode and pretty quickly we had new beginnings in February. So two months after I'd been called, it was new beginnings. 
And we had this amazing program with these girls, you know, conducting the meeting and sharing their thoughts and sharing their, their testimonies. And the whole theme of our new beginnings was about motherhood, which felt inspired and correct in every way. But at the end of the night, there was a bouquet of roses and each of the girls came up front and grabbed a a rose out of the bouquet and gave it to their mother. And at that moment, I realized I was the only mom in the room who did not receive a rose from her daughter. And that's when my pain just exploded into that deep, deep darkness. And I, I kept telling my bishop, you need to release me. And the wise man that he was, he's like, for some reason, you're supposed to be there. We're going to to leave you in place. And for three months, I suffered and I was not doing the, doing the work, you know, that I'd been called and agreed to do. And again, the people around me supported me, picked up the slack and did the work. But at the three-year mark, uh, after the accident, my bishop said, I I feel like I need to give you a blessing. And I remember sitting in that sacrament meeting and there was so much darkness. I just, it was like, I was not even present. I have this vague recollection of sitting in the room and sitting on the bench. I have a vague recollection of moving from the bench to the bishop's office with my husband and him laying his hands on my head and giving me a blessing. And within 24 hours, it was like I felt the darkness leave. I I just, I felt, I felt that darkness leave and I felt like I could function again and like I was was myself again. Like there were still a lot of questions. Don't get me wrong. There was still a lot of growth to do. There was still a lot of understanding and, um, you know, just work to do. There was still a lot, but the darkness had left and I was able to start functioning again. And it was truly miraculous. I love you being I will never ever forget that. I love you being so honest about the darkness and about how you know it wasn't week 1 or month 1 it was sounds like two and a half years 3 years past that was the darkest. Um because my experience is a lot of people go through that and they need voices that have walked this road. Yeah. Um, and I and and a lot of times people want to hear, okay, well, how long am I going to have to be in this grief? How long am I going to have to be in this pain? And the answer is, I don't know. I don't know. But there's things that help and there's things that hurt. And when we start saying, I should be doing better, that does not help. It, it, it's a process of learning compassion for ourselves, compassion for our experience, compassion for the the pain allowing the pain to move through us i i had an experience if it's okay if i go back a little bit please so you would 
think that Mother's Day would just be the most horrific day every single year for me. The first anniversary after the accident, both of my daughters, we were again living in in Texas. Both of my daughters by this point were out in Idaho going to college. And um, we came home, my husband and I came home. It was that that weekend of Mother's Day. We came home on a Friday night. We'd been out with friends. (laughs) We'd been out with friends and um, gone out on a with another couple. And when we got home, we walked in the back door. Now, our two sons were at home. They were at the time, I think, 17 and 14. We walked through the back door and here's these girls' backpacks at the back door. And my husband goes running upstairs thinking that the boys had these girls over at the house, you know, (laughs) entertaining them while we weren't at home. He goes bounding up the stairs. I've never seen him move so fast. I think he took three stairs at a time (laughs) and he gets up there and it's our daughters. They had flown home. Our oldest daughter actually got married six months after the accident. Um, So it was our our two daughters and our son-in-law had flown home for the weekend. And when I sat in church that Sunday on Mother's Day, with all my kids on the bench, except for Carrie and David, and no doubt they were there too, But I sat on that bench with my kids and my son-in-law and my husband. I was so overcome with gratitude for this wonderful family and for the blessing of being a mother. And it changed my whole experience with motherhood and with Mother's Day. And I, I, I just moved into this like space of... And over time, I don't know that I had this realization then, but at some point in this process, I had this realization that if Carrie was only supposed to live 10 years and David was only supposed to have lived eight years, because I truly believe no one is taken before their time. And if they were only supposed to live for eight and 10 years, then it seems I had a choice. I could either be their mother or I could have them here with me for eight and 10 years. And I would a hundred times choose to be their mother than miss out on that opportunity to be their mother, even with all the pain that their departure caused. I love those stories. This I love, I wish listeners could see your face and just your disposition (laughs) and your ability to talk about this. Um, talk about um, the name of the book, um, kind of the name of your whole effort, Building Life After Loss. How did you come? I, I think it's intuitive, but I'd love to for you to talk to our listeners how you came up with that. I assume it was very intentional. Yeah, and it's interesting because there's there's not a huge story around the name, except that initially when I when I formed my um, my effort, which, you know, we call a business, but it's a mission, right? When I formed it legally, I had a whole different name. And then it just came to me, it's build a life after loss. And so I filed a DBA doing business <laughs> as, <laughs> and that's what I do business as, is uh, build a life after loss. 
in 2012, so five years after the accident, I was picking up, you know, if it's okay, if I kind of move into like how all this came to be, like, why am I, I, I was actually speaking with one podcaster. He was a therapist. I was on his show and he said, he said, I imagine when you were growing up, you didn't say, I'm going to be a grief coach. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's not, not something that a five, five-year-old dreams of. And certainly it wasn't something that I dreamed of either, but I, um, in 2012, five years later, my mom had been serving a mission and I'd gone out to pick her up and help her drive back to Nashville where she lives. And, and she kept telling me about these friends, this couple that she just loved that she worked with while she was uh, serving. And she said, I just want you to meet them. I just want you to meet them. And so when I'd gone to pick her up, we went to lunch with this couple and the, the husband told a little bit about his story of having undiagnosed bipolar disorder and how that had like wrecked havoc on his life and the life of his family. And that when he was finally diagnosed and received treatment and stabilized and knew what had happened, then now, you know, at the time he's telling the story, he, he was helping other people who also had their life turned upside down by bipolar and helping and supporting them. And it was just such an inspiring story that he told. I was just enthralled. And in the middle of our lunch, my mom said, Julie, tell your story. And I was um, very reluctant. I didn't tell my story then. And I just kind of looked at her like, ah, why would you even say that? <laughs> but reluctantly, I did share what had happened with Carrie and David. And um, and as we were leaving that lunch, as we got up from the table and we we're walking towards the exit, this man that had just told his, you know, shared his story came up to me, put his hand on my arm and said, you're supposed to do something with this. And it was like a lightning bolt through my soul. I had no idea what he meant, but I absolutely knew that he was correct. I knew in my soul, I knew that God had a plan for me. And even in even before that happened, I just kept thinking, there's some reason I'm still alive. There's some reason that I didn't die in that accident too. But when he said that, like, it just, whew, it was just like, but I spent nearly five years trying to figure out what that something was. And it, 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 <laughs> It was like in my brain all the time and in my heart all the time, like, ah, I know, I know you said I'm supposed to do something with this, but what is it? And then I actually had somebody else say that to me too, almost the exact same thing, almost the exact same experience about, I would say it was close to three years later. Anyway, it took me about five years to figure it out. And it was a journey. It was not like, oh, this is what I'm supposed to do and start doing it. It was a process where I actually enrolled. 
I, I went back to college. I thought I'm going to become a therapist. I enrolled in classes. I went to the first week and I knew instinctively I was on the wrong path. And I unenrolled immediately and thought, okay, this isn't it. I'm going to figure out what it is. And over time, what you see now, it, you know, developed with a lot of time and effort and um, yeah, but the book, I knew that I wanted to write something for my children. You know, we live with people, but do we really hear their stories? Do we really know what their experience is? Even though our whole family went through the the same experience of losing David and Carrie, we all didn't have the same experience. We all, every single one of us, my husband and I included, had a different experience with that accident. And to this day, I give so much credit to my husband. I don't know anybody else who would have stuck with me through all that because I was, I was a mess. I was an absolute mess. Um, I can't even, oh, I was an absolute mess. Um, but writing the book was an interesting experience because I had this, this, this desire grew in me to write, write a book. You know, like I said, I wanted something for my kids, but also, you know, that could be for the people that listen to the podcast and, and the, the clients that I work with and so on and so forth. And so I decided I was going to write this book and I, I created a plan and I, I looked at my schedule and I said, okay, this was almost four years ago now. I said, okay, in January, I'm going to start writing the book. I'm going to have it done in the, in the spring. I'm going to launch it, you know, that, that spring. And then a publisher reached out to me because I was going to self-publish. A publisher reached out to me and they said, have you ever thought about writing a book? And I'm like, well, that's interesting. It's interesting. <laughs> and and then when I met with them and I, they said, well, we have an opening. If you can have it done in the spring. And I went, oh my goodness. Wow. <laughs> that was my plan. That was my plan. And I, I decided to go with the publisher because that took off my plate trying to do the distribution and the, the, the actual having it printed, all that stuff. So I was, um, I was super grateful for that additional help to, to get the book out. I love that you become a grief coach and I believe you also then train other grief coaches. And I love that you went to therapy, you know, went to those first classes and recognized that's not my path. And I think of Elder Holland's talk in St. George where they're driving and they go down a dead end and it clarified the road they should go on. So I look at these experiences, listeners, sometimes when we try something and we feel pretty good about it and we quickly learn it's not the right thing. It's not a step backwards, but a clarification of our path forward. And so I love this. There's no roadmap for you, Julie. I guess there is, you know, with Heavenly Father and personal revelation, but actually put that into practice. You're on a road that no one's walked before. Um, you don't yeah. have mentors that have gone and this is how you'd walk this road of grief and then start to talk about your story and help others. So it's a very unique story, but the principles give perspective and hope for others. Yeah. Well, and I think it's, you know, as, as I was reflecting on sharing today, 
I was, I was thinking about how at the time the accident happened, it's like, oh, I hope I can put this into words. When things happen, we have what we need to heal, but we're not capable at the moment. Um, so in other words, in that moment, when I, when I look back, I think all the things that, <clears throat> excuse me, all the things that I needed to understand and I, I knew in that moment to a certain extent, but I, but I couldn't integrate it. I needed the time and the space and the growth to integrate it. I didn't have the strength. I didn't have the strength to just set grief down and, you know, move forward. I, I had to develop that. It, when, when we're called to do hard things, which if we think about our grief experiences as being called to do hard things, then we don't always have the strength to face those things in the moment. But as we continue to, as we continue in hope, as we continue in faith and even in charity, love for ourselves, love for God, as we continue to exercise our baby understanding of those principles, which is what I was doing, you know, my, my infant understanding of those principles, I was willing to just keep trying. I, I heard someone say one time, try to try. I love that so much. Keep trying to try. And that's what I was doing, even though it was a disaster, even though it didn't look like there was light at the end of the tunnel, even though it didn't look like there was a path or a way out, like I was going to be in this dark space forever. I was trying. I was trying. I I rejoined or I continued to work with my um I continued to play with my tennis team, my neighborhood tennis team, who were so supportive of me. And that was a wonderful outlet to be outside moving. And that was a huge outlet. I continued to um, go to church, even though it was really hard. Going to church when you're in pain is super hard. And I don't think we talk about that enough. It's it's the continuing to try even when it's hard. And 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 I was talking about how hard it is to go to church when we're in pain because this spiritual things are so close to emotions. And when our emotions are already overtaxed with grief and pain and sorrow and loneliness and all the things, going to church just feels like, it, it, it just feels impossible. I, I can remember going and, and thinking, <laughs> I can remember thinking, if I show up like I'm okay, then people are going to think I don't love my children. This is a crazy thought. It's a good thought. And then I would share. think, if I show up and I'm falling apart, people are going to think I I'm falling apart and I'm I'm not capable and you know blah 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 blah. Right? Oh, it was just hard. It was just hard. But I showed up anyway week after week I showed up 
And I just kept trying. And I just kept trying to figure out like things like, how do you answer the question? How many children do you have? That was hard for a long time. I didn't know how to answer that question. How, how do you show up at, at church and, and, and sit alone sometimes because the rest of your family didn't have it in them to show up? You know, it's, it's, it's not easy. And we just, we need to, I don't, I, I wonder how many people every week when I go to church, I look around the congregation, I'm like, how many people are here in so much pain that they can't even express? Yeah, I think that's true. But it's worth it. It was worth it. I'm glad. I'm glad I stuck with it. I'm glad I... Uh, I yeah I kept thinking like it's it goes back to the the verse where uh, Jesus says you know are you going to leave also and Peter says where would we go and that's what I kept thinking in my heart like where would I go where is my solace if I don't stay connected to God to the Spirit to the things that bring me so much hope because I know where my kids are. I know they're okay. I wasn't okay, but I knew they were okay. And now even, now the the latest thing, a couple of months ago, I, I heard this impression, teach angels. And so now I'm teaching angels and it's so much fun teaching people to really understand how much support they have, even when it feels like there's no support. It goes back to the the Old Testament story of Elijah saying, Lord, open his eyes, open my servant's eyes so he can see. Like they're surrounded by enemies, enemy soldiers. And he's like, open their open my servant's eyes so he can see. And then the hills were filled with angelic help. And I think we have so much more help than we realize. Um, let me ask you some questions. These might be questions that are a little more tender, but I think they won't surprise you. And you've been asked them before, or you've certainly thought them before. Um, I, I'm, you know, I, I go to testimony meeting and often we hear the miracle and we, and sometimes they're driving stories. <laughs> um, you've heard a lot of them and yeah. you didn't, in some ways, and they used to be super triggering. <laughs> yeah. So talk about um, what you, maybe you felt like you did get your miracle because James um, survived and you didn't lose your arm. But in some ways you didn't get your miracle because you lost two kids. So how do you reconcile that, you know, this and maybe at first you said it's because I wasn't faithful enough or God was punishing me for whatever I did at age 14 that was very minor. I mean, some parents, and you know this in your grief coaching, go backwards and just said, I didn't get my miracle because I missed family night for three consecutive. I'm being a little silly in a very t- No, you're not at all. Like, you are talk, so spot on. Talk you're about so spot how on. you got out of that mindset. And there's a lot of, you just run with that. <laughs> Yeah, there. Oh, there's so much there. Again, the adversary is going to pick on the thing that is going to make us hate ourselves, hate our circumstances, 
think that God doesn't love us, think that God doesn't support us. He is going to, he is going to exaggerate those things in our life. And that is certainly what happened for me too. Uh, I'm so glad you asked this because that was such a prominent thought in my mind was that I was being punished, that I was being punished. And, and one of the things that I thought possibly was one of the reasons I was being punished is because I took this drive on a Sunday. True. I mean, isn't that just like the craziest thing? You might even fill the car up with gas on a Sunday before the drive. I did. We went to, I think it was Taco Bell for lunch, right? We were on the road and and, um, my kids were surprised to hear me say, get whatever you want, because I never did that. (laughs) I was always like, we have this much money. (laughs) Um, Yeah, I, I truly thought that I was being punished. And in my darkest 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 days and at towards the end when i was like so desperate in those last few couple months before i received that blessing i was so desperate and i remember being with the um young women group and we were on a hike preparing for a girls camp and i was with the camp director and we'd kind of fallen behind the group and i remember i was just i was talking to anybody that would listen. And I don't know that they heard my desperation, but I was just looking for somebody that could say, this is what you need to do, or this is, this will help or or anything, anything. And I remember saying to her that day, I just feel like I'm being punished. I said those exact words. And she said, to her credit, she said, God only does things to bless us. And when she said that, I knew she was right. I couldn't fully comprehend it because I had practiced the thought that I was being punished for so long that I couldn't totally comprehend it. But it like lit a little spark that maybe she's right. And um, it led, it led to feeling that blessing again from from God and feeling that miraculous healing. And honestly, I have to say when I first when I first entered this field of coaching others or even considering it, you know, even considering talking about grief, when I first thought about that, my first my first thoughts were how am I supposed to teach people about healing? Because I don't just work, first of all, I don't just work with LDS people. I work with people all over the world and I, from different faiths and without faith backgrounds. And, and I, um, and I, I just, I wondered how am I going to, because I felt like I got, I had such a miraculous experience. I was just like, how do I translate that into helping other people? And really, it was when I was writing my book that I finally felt like I really had an answer. And the answer that I felt was that I had that experience so that I could testify of hope, so I could testify of healing, that healing is available to anybody. It does, but the form may be different. The way that it looks, the way that it shows up, the the it, it, Healing is miraculous and and available, even if it takes seven years 
even if it's gradual, even if it takes time and it takes more effort, it always takes more effort than we think it's going to or should. Um, it always does. But I don't know. Did I answer your you question? <laughs> um, you know, and I'm going to read an excerpt you wrote in in our book that's coming out, and maybe you wrote the same thing in your book, but it's pretty brave of you to be this um, straightforward. And I think it's part of your path of healing. The guilt was crushingly overwhelming. I felt like I had not only killed my kids, but I'd ruined my husband and my family's life as well. People spend a lifetime trying to forgive someone else, a drunk driver or an errant doctor or other perpetrator, but I had... I had to literally live with the, the skin of the per perpetrator all day long. There was no one to blame but me. Over the following weeks and months, the guilt and shame ate at me until I was consumed with self-hatred and despair and became um, deeply depressed. Learning to forgive myself provided proved to be unique, a uniquely, uniquely challenging. That's a really powerful paragraph you wrote, and I, I'm glad you wrote that paragraph. And and because I think other people feel that way. And yeah. you being so honest with that, I don't think necessarily at this point is you beating yourself up. It's just sharing how you feel. And and then people then say, okay, <laughs> um, I'm not alone. And I feel the same way. And how did this person get to this point? Talk a little bit about the miracle you didn't get. Um, you talked about, you know, sort of, um, this is my fault. I'm being punished, but talk about, I don't want to trigger you in anything I say, but you know, you know, you know, all this stuff, you're the mom, you're supposed to protect these kids. Now these kids are gone. Their, their mortality has certainly changed. Um, then I go to church and I hear stories of people being protected. Everybody in a rollover lived. I'm sure you've heard every version of your rollover story. How do you, how do you, and maybe this is a doctrinal answer or your personal revelation, how do you not get, and maybe you're angry at God, and I've learned that being angry at God is okay, and maybe that's a phase people go through in this stage, but just how did you get to peace that you, or maybe you felt like you did get your miracle and you did get exactly what was supposed to happen, and that's your peace. But just talk about that, maybe for people who are wondering, well, why did I get a miracle? Yeah. Oh, I think it's such an important question because I there are lots of miracles in my life that never happened. My brother who died by suicide wasn't miraculously saved. Yeah. Someone didn't show up and stop the the process that that took his life. And I remember how hard that was. And I have interviewed people who, on my podcast, who actually, I think, um, um, Todd Sylvester, yeah. you've had him probably on this yeah. podcast too, right? Yeah. So so I've been on his podcast. He's been on mine. That's and we've great. talked about Todd's that. And even after the show, we talked about like, he was saved from suicide. Yeah. But my brother wasn't. Yeah. And, and... I, I think we all have to come to terms with those circumstances in different ways. I, I don't know that that I have an answer that is um, satisfactory. 
But for me, I'll just, I'll just read. So I've written a full workbook that I use with my clients and I'll just read a portion uh, if that's okay of something that I wrote. So this was a response to a mom because Richard, we are being programmed for despair. Our society is set up to program us for despair. I see it everywhere. My eyes are so open to it. People go to Facebook groups for suicide, for um, lost children, for lost parents, and so on and so forth. And especially in these groups for parents who've lost children, the common theme is you will grieve forever. It's going to hurt forever. With every beat of your heart, it's going to hurt. And I'm talking about groups with over a quarter of a million people on it. reading these things day after day after day. And I'm this little teeny tiny piece coming in there saying, no, you don't have to grieve forever. I know it's hard right now. And I know in the middle of it, it doesn't feel like it's possible not to grieve forever, but it is. So this mom had written uh, on a Facebook um, group for parents who lost children that she just wanted to die. Like she just, she just couldn't do it anymore. And I felt inspired to write, and I I wrote a pretty long piece, but I'm just going to share just a little excerpt. I said, over time, I began to allow more joy. I allowed the sadness. I allowed all of it to heal my broken heart. I allowed God to reign. I stopped arguing with him. I accepted his will for me, for my kids, for everything. I completely reframed my thinking around everything that happened. Now I truly believe life happens for us. Someone posted they just wanted to die. I remember feeling that way in the early days. I remember feeling like life could not and should not exist as it existed right then. It's a horrible place to be. It's excruciating. Please, please get the support you need to live. Please open your heart to hope that there are better days ahead. I stand as testament that there are better days ahead. I love my life now. I, lo- I live in joy and peace, although not without struggle. I have purpose. There is a reason I'm still here, and there's a reason you're still here. Wow. Um, wow. I'm glad you're doing what you're doing. I'm glad you're a voice. Talk about um, the darkness. Um, right before that bishop's blessing. Like, do you feel that was Satan? Do you feel that was mental health and just the darkness of your mental health? Or do you feel it was a little bit of both? Um, sometimes people use darkness and link it to different things. Just talk. Uh, you know, it's hard for me to really know. I think it was a little bit, you know, I, I think you're right on track when you said a little bit of both. Um, and, and in fact, the therapist that I was working with at the time had said to me that she felt like my brain chemistry had shifted so much because of everything that had happened that that's what was creating a lot of the um, de- severe depression that I was experiencing. Um, and And so to answer your question... I think it's a little bit of both. You know, I think I think that again, the adversary knows our weaknesses, but I want to emphasize 
that God knows our strength. He knows who we really are. And a lot of, I, I, I want to be very, very clear that God's love, light, and power is greater, no matter what. Greater. About a month before the accident, and I talk about this in the book. So in, in my book, I, I share this you know experience. I also reflect back on experiences that I had with losing my brother and experiences I had you know during my divorce because those previous grief experiences um, informed my grief experience after losing my kids. But I um, about a month before the accident, I was with some friends. We had traveled by car to go to this event that was out of state. And one of, one of the friends that was with me, she was visiting a friend of hers who had lost a daughter in a very uh, tragic accident and a very unusual accident. And her daughter was 17 when she had died. And I think at this point, it had been about 10 years since her, her daughter died. And, and this other woman, I didn't really know, but I knew of her because people had told me because um, she had previously lived in our area in Houston. Anyway, my friend had visited this other friend who had lost her daughter while we were on this trip because she lived in the town that we went to. On our trip home, it was so unusual. And so like all these things that God put in my, in place to prepare me for what I was going to experience, even though you can never be fully prepared. Uh, on the way home, my friend was talking about her friend who had lost this daughter and how she was, you know, working and doing all these things. And I remember at the time thinking, oh my word, like how in the world did she overcome that, that she's able to live a, you know, a relatively normal life again. So that was in my mind. Then also one of the discussions on this trip was how the adversary really has so much power, you know, and, 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 and it's true. Like we cannot deny that, but we also have to remember that God's power is greater. And we were having that whole discussion and the, the story in First Nephi came to mind about, you know, Nephi saying, if Laban, I can't even remember the words right now, but if even if Laban had access to army after army, God's power is greater. I, I don't remember the words right now and, or the reference right now, but I remember feeling really compelled to share that verse with my friends that day. And it was like, you know, Heavenly Father was preemptively reminding me that his power was greater. And, and when I came out of the darkness and I had my faculties about me, I could look at the accident and go, if Carrie and David were meant to be here, if they were meant to be alive right now, they would be alive. I love that. I wouldn't have had inspiration to bring my arm in. I would have had inspiration to wake up. I love that. That's really powerful. I love your answer about the darkness and 
I'm a fan of Jesus, as you've been teaching us. I'm a fan of therapy, as you know well, and now are doing. And I think um, we need Jesus and we need a therapist. Not maybe in every situation. Sometimes maybe the darkness we feel is just sin-related, but there's no sin here. <laughs> but I do right. like the way you point out Satan puts thoughts in our minds to separate us from the love of God and to put us into a bad spot with our yeah. thoughts or and, and there's cycling no, there's backwards. There's no sin there, but there's an opportunity for growth in these experiences. And, and in fact, you know, I developed the hope model of healing, which includes the five foundations of growth. And that is the, the big piece is that, that we can't just, you know, people say time heals, heals all wounds and, and there's an element of time, but we need time we need effort, we need correct principles, and we need the grace of God. Talk about the word, let me, a little background is, you know, sometimes I hear someone says, and you brought this up at the beginning, says, just be happy, it's a choice. And I've been, and so I'm, this is a leading question with some of my feelings. I, I personally love the word, hope has always been my favorite word in the gospel. And understanding of our doctrine, I think, gives hope in the life of Christ. Peace is something also that I think is within our control to have in our lives. I've been nervous about saying to people that it's a choice to be happy and you can choose to be happy or that's a, something that's actually within your control. Because I worry about people with ongoing mental health issues, people with immense grief and being told to be happy seems like like you talked about at the beginning do you want to just talk about that i you know just your thoughts on all those words and that space yeah i kind of touch a little bit of that in in my book as well so i'm trying to figure out you know the best way to to share what because i you know I could probably do five podcast episodes <laughs> on that question alone. Um, there are choices all along the way. And we oversimplify it when we say we can choose to be happy. It's, it's, the danger is in the oversimplification. I think there's a lot of danger in bumper sticker slogans in general. Mm. Like time heals all wounds. We want things to be simple. We want things to be easy. We and and so we gravitate to these types of phrases and these types of, of things. But the fact is, is that it's both hard and simple. It, it's challenging and possible. So it, it it's not one thing. It's it's a it's doing the the little things that are important over time to create the momentum and to um, to create the result that we want. when I'm working with clients in grief, and grief is such a different animal. I, one of my very first clients I ever worked with was a multi-million dollar coach. So he had hundreds of tools in his um in his tool belt, you know, and, and he was a person who practiced those tools, but then he was up against grief and he's like, I don't know what to do with this. So grief is a different animal. I will say that it is a different animal. And sometimes we take some of these slogans or we take some of the, um, 
life coach skills or, or, or tools that are so prevalent now. And we think, okay, I can just, you know, if I just change my thoughts, I can change my feelings and that will, you know, change my results and, and that kind of thing. Um, but grief is a different animal and we need to, we need to take care of ourselves. We need to be able to honor the grief honor the pain and allow ourselves to move through it. Just like if you had a physical injury, Richard, if you were in the hospital and I said, okay, go run a marathon, you know, that would be equivalent to saying to somebody who's in grief, be happy. Wow. So it's, it's, it's honoring the process. It's honoring the experience. It's recognizing that grief is normal and natural. It's a part of life. It's a part of our experience. We don't pay any attention to grief until we're in the middle of it. And it's like being thrown into the middle of a deep, dark lake, and we've never learned how to swim. Now, imagine what it would be like to be in the middle of a lake and never, never knowing how to swim. And that's what it feels like when we're in the middle of grief because we have no idea. And so we depend on the bumper sticker slogans, the time heals all wounds or the, the other piece that, so people get either the get over it or you're going to grieve forever. None of which are true. The get over it discounts the pain that they're in. And the you'll grieve forever discounts the hope. We honor the grief and we move through it and we honor the pain. I, I will also say, and a lot of times, and especially I see this um, in the gospel, you know, when people are literate in the gospel of Jesus Christ, a lot of times they... Um, People want to go straight to gratitude. And I did a little bit of talking about gratitude today because gratitude is powerful. And I feel like gratitude is like this island of rest in the middle of grief. So when we can access it, it's this beautiful island of rest where we can we can be grateful for the things that we do have or the things that we are experiencing. I can be grateful for, you know, my arm being okay. And I can be grateful for my son's um, recovery. And at the same time, I can also grieve. So it's not replacing grief with gratitude. It's realizing that there's a place for both of those things. The, the Here's another thing that I, that I find is really, really important for us to realize. In our talking about forgiveness, like I had to learn to forgive myself. A lot of times the forgiveness that we need is for another person. And a lot of times we're not willing or we're not, able to access that or we're just not there yet um, but i i talk about it this way so imagine imagine that someone shot you with an arrow and you need to forgive that person you need to forgive that person for harming you so when somebody at you know, attacks us verbally or um, says something that's unkind or does something that's unkind or, or causes injury to our life or our being or our livelihood or whatever, we have this need to forgive. That is an important piece. But imagine that you're shot by an arrow. You're not just turning around and forgiving the person. You're also tending to the wound. And it's an important element of the healing process. We don't just heal 
you know, if I'm shot with an arrow and I have a wound in my chest because somebody just shot me with an arrow, saying, I forgive you is a piece, but that doesn't heal the wound. I don't know. What do you think about that? <laughs> I love that. Um, just kind of giving you the the thumbs up either in my mind just for the content you're sharing. I love the way you create um, sort of paradoxes. You can live with both feelings in a binary sometimes world. Um, listeners, please read, and I'm not done with the podcast. I've got some more questions. You know, please pick up um, Julie's book. We'll link to it in the show notes, Miracles in the Darkness, Building a Life After Loss. And the book I briefly reference is the third book we're doing, and it's kind of this idea of improving good chip Zion and and how to make Zion more welcoming and more belonging. And one of the chapters is helping those dealing with grief. And you're one of the authors in that chapter. Um, my last author, as I turned over and saw your Facebook post, and we were just concluding this chapter, I says, I said to myself and my editors, Julie needs to be in this chapter. And um, one of the themes of that chapter is that, and I don't, it's not a, it's kind of a, uh, I should say it's a kind of a minor hypothesis that you might have some feelings on, but I've worried with our understanding of the plan of salvation, we don't allow grief because we point to, you're going to be with um, your two kids and everything's fine. So let's just all kind of move on. (laughs) There's not, I don't want to be that critical of our culture, but I've wondered if you felt any of that in just because we do have this beautiful doctrine that gives context and hope and peace, do we then not allow grief because we say, well, it's we it's back to your bumper sticker. I call them platitudes, these simple statements that keep me emotionally safe because I'm not grieving and sort of dismiss my responsibility to walk with you and sit with you in your pain because I can just point to you'll raise them in the next life. Any thoughts on that? Yeah, uh, so many thoughts on that. And and in fact, I will say that this is not just a um, common experience in our church. It's a common experience in Christianity in general um, that people, and and I actually, in the middle of my grief and so many times um, since, you know, I, I would, I would, there was one particular situation that really stands out to me. So there was a a young man that was in our ward who his mom was dying of cancer and he stood up in a testimony meeting and said, because of my belief and because of my testimony of Jesus Christ, I will, I will, I don't remember exactly how he phrased it, but something along the lines that kind of alluded to, he wouldn't grieve when his mom died. And I honestly wanted to stand up in the middle of the meeting and say, hang on a second. (laughs) Let's, let's, let's look at that a little closer. And so many times I have heard things like that uh, or something similar. And, and again, we're just, we're discounting the human experience. We're discounting the pain. And I, I do think that, um, you know, I've, I've experienced losses since my kids died and I'm in a totally different space now, obviously, you know, with the work that I do, that doesn't mean that I don't still grieve. 
But it looks very different for me now because I understand grief. I understand the process. I understand what I'm experiencing. So I'm not heaping additional pain and shame and guilt and everything on top of myself for grieving, which is what we do. Um, we we have to be willing, and it it's so hard. It's so hard in general, and you know one of the reasons that people in general, not just in in our churches, will say things like you know just get over it type comments is because they want to feel better. Yeah. And if, and if I can convince you to just get over it, then I can feel okay too. You know, that's, that's kind of the come from. And, and we, and it's just an, I mean, I laid in the hospital after Carrie and David died. And this, this was another miraculous moment for me. I laid in the hospital and I had this realization that I needed to be, um, how do, how to say this, that, that I needed to be okay with what other people said and did around what happened because and I, I think that, again, this was a blessing from the spirit saying, Julie, there's enough pain. You don't need to worry about what other people are saying and doing. You know, I think that that was part of that. But I see so much pain in the people that I coach because of what other people say and do. But we're just ignorant. We just don't realize. And and so if you're grieving and your friend has said something you know, equivalent to just get over it, or your friend has said, are you still upset about that i mean i i hear i hear people who have lost their husband and two months later somebody will say to them you're still dealing with that i'm like oh my gosh and it doesn't help any that i don't know if i should go here but it doesn't help any that the um the association that the psychology association has now created a new um a new diagnosis of prolonged grief disorder that if somebody is grieving longer than a year, then it's a disorder, which I don't ascribe to. I think that grief can last as long as it needs to last for us to move through it. But what lasts so much longer is that our, is that we have so much pain about grieving. Interesting. Because we're not only grieving, we're having so much judgments of ourselves for grieving. Wow. And and this this idea that this idea that we we have to just get over it in a minute is not valid. I, I, let me can I share another please idea around this. So I often think about you know and and you haven't had this experience, Richard, <laughs> but I have. I had six children. And when you have a child, your body changes, you know, your, your body expands to accommodate the child, right? And, and the baby. And then when the baby is born, it's not like the next day you, you're wearing the same clothes you were wearing before you were expecting a baby. It takes time. It took you nine months to get into that, you know, condition. <laughs> it's going to take you a little while for your body to, to adjust. And, and it never goes back to the same. It's, if we can use, if it's okay to just use that same scenario, you've, you've experienced a huge change. When people go through grief, they've lost a spouse of 40 years. They've lost a child. They've lost a marriage. They've lost a career. When they go through these losses, 
it's it's they need the time to accommodate the major change it's it's a wound it's an injury it's a and i i always 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 love to use physical analogies because we understand that we understand. like if 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 you broke your leg and i said okay well you know tomorrow you're wearing a, you're running a marathon you'd look at me like i was crazy nobody would ever do that and yet how many times do we do that to people who are grieving so if you are the person who is grieving and your friends don't understand and your family doesn't understand they don't know why you're still grieving please have self-compassion and have compassion for your family and friends. I, you know, I, I, when people would say things that were less sensitive, I would often think they don't understand. And boy, am I glad they don't get it. Wow. Cause this lot, is hard. A lot of grace in that and spiritual maturity, Julie. Well, it's, um, it just, it, it, like I said, you know, when we go through these things, it's it's not that we're capable of going through them, but through the grace of God, through the grace of Jesus Christ's atonement, we can gain the strength. Somebody asked me one time, how can you allow, how can you allow Jesus to comfort you? And I thought that was such a fascinating question. And so I did a little research. I'm like, what does that even mean? I looked up the the, the meaning of comfort. I love the 1828 um, Webster's Dictionary. And in that dictionary, you know, one of the words to describe comfort is strength. So now when I hear that Jesus comforts us, I hear strength. Now, when I hear comfort those who are in need of comfort, I hear lend strength. We're not trying to talk them into being stronger. We're not trying to, but we're showing up. You know, like all my friends that showed up, that planted flowers, who, who door. <laughs> did remarkable things. They lended strength just by their presence. It's really powerful. Um, I get really amped up about this stuff. Can you tell? <laughs> I thought you could handle any question I send your way. Yeah. I, you know, listeners, I, when we wrote this chapter, I, one of the things I wrote is sometimes in our culture, our LDS culture, we, we elevate people that seem to have experienced a tragedy and then moved on them. And I wrote, we create sort of non-grief heroes or a missionary that bravely continues to serve, even when given the option to come home for a parent or a sibling funeral. And um, we sometimes, we don't say this literally, but sometimes we almost um, draw a line between increased faithfulness and less grief. Um, that if we totally understand the plan, you're shaking your head, this is cringing you, I know. <laughs> if we really understood the plan, um, and sometimes we elevate voices of people, or sometimes there'll be a talk in church or maybe even a general talk in our church where someone talks about we they may not talk like this but we talk about them and say so and so has really moved on that was really hard they've moved on yeah you're right that makes me feel comfortable too because i don't have to sort of be emotionally present for them so any thoughts on that <laughs> i'm sure you do <laughs> oh yeah i where to go um <laughs> 
And you don't need to elaborate on it if you don't want to. Uh, and that's okay. I I I fear that. Like even even when I I do webinars, I do podcasts. I talk about this all day long. I talk about hope. I talk about healing, and I I fear giving people the idea that um you know that somehow I'm special because I had this experience or, or because I was able to move through this experience and, and be able to, to function, you know, in my life and, and function in a, I would say a relatively good way, you know? Um, and, and I fear that people think that somehow I'm special and I will tell you a hundred times to infinity that I am not special, but I had hope. I had hope. And even when my hope seemed to almost completely dwindle and disappear completely, and my friend saying that one statement, God only blesses us. It sparked my hope again. There's nothing special about me. There's something special about our Savior, Jesus Christ. That's where the special is. That's where our hope is. I didn't really understand the idea of hope for many, many years. You know, we talk about faith and hope, and it was like, okay, I get faith and I get charity, but what is this hope thing? Like, it just felt like it kind of melded into faith. And I had this, this um, image come to mind uh, a, a few months ago. And it was that if we're, if, if you think about getting in a car and going somewhere, it was that hope is the destination. Faith is the vehicle and charity is the fuel. And that really helped me to, to identify it a little clearer but hope is knowing, you know, when our hope is in Christ, it's knowing that the destination is there for us. We also condescended to come to this earth. We are powerful children of God, but we've forgotten it because of the cloak of mortality. We've forgotten how powerful we are. And... um yeah, that's really just, good. It, it's. I love that, and I don't know if, as you're thinking, new thoughts come into my mind listening to you, Julie. And one of the things I thought is, you know, if I'm experiencing five points of grief and no hope, um, and those five points get reallocated to five points of hope and no points of grief, maybe that's not true. Maybe there's more than five points there. Maybe I still have four points of grief and five points of hope. And I actually have both of those emotions concurrently. Um, yeah. So maybe you still feel grief as you feel hope and as you feel peace. And yeah. but maybe it's a good goal to hope that your grief eventually ends. So I don't know if you have any thoughts yeah. on that. Well, I will say that, you know, a lot of times people will say to me, I remember actually being in a bookstore looking for my book on the shelf and the, the young man that was helping me, he, we ended up talking just briefly and I shared just a, a tiny bit of my story. And he says, well, I imagine you'll grieve forever. And I said, no, I, I, I literally 
do not grieve my experience with losing my children anymore or my experience losing my brother or uh, and and I know that's hard to understand but I also have new grief experiences interesting so while we can move through the grief experiences that we have and trade it with hope new things peace. will develop that 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 then challenge challenge us again to a new level of growth. Boy, I've had some huge growth experiences this past year. Great answer. Here's a question I wrote. Um, listeners, I'm down to the end of my questions. <laughs> um, <laughs> so we're probably wrapping up this podcast, but this is a question that came to my mind way at the beginning. And I wrote down the word spouse conflict. And in your coaching, you may have situations where um, yeah, I mean, we all know you were driving your car. That was a joint decision between you and your husband, and he flew, and this happened under your watch, so to speak. And and I also recognize that you had no history of falling asleep. You didn't feel you fell asleep, but and maybe there was some tension between you and your husband. But just I don't know. It's it's kind of a hard thing to do in just a short segment. But any thoughts on where there's tension? you know, in a, in a relationship where under someone's watch, and it's generally the mom because the mom is more around the kids than the dad. And yeah. that's certainly been true in our raising of our kids. My wife is 80%, 90% of the time sort of with the kids and doing all these things with them. So it's more likely to happen yeah. under watch. Just my mathematical mind would take me there, but talk about that. Well, interestingly, when I first had uh, my oldest daughter, I remember my pediatrician, is saying to me, you know, be really, uh, be really careful, you know, be, be, because if something happens, you know, the, I don't remember exactly how she said it because it's been so long ago, but something along the lines of if there's an accident, something happens to your kids, it, you know, most marriages end, wow. um, it will destroy a marriage. And so that was part of my thought process too when the kids died is like my marriage is going to end now too yeah. right um that was you know it was not only did we experience child you know losing two children but we it was also a second marriage for both of us so the statistics were against us and this gives me an opportunity to talk about statistics <laughs> sometimes we use statistics against ourselves interesting so like, for example, if you're diagnosed with something and the, the doctor says you have, a, you know, 60, 40% chance, 60, 40 uh, chance of surviving this, you know, 60% chance that you're not going to survive, 40% chance that you will survive. What do we think? What do we focus on? The 60%. But what about the 40% that survived? So if, if statistically, everything was against us. And honestly, it was horrific. Our relationship was uh, just in shambles for a long time. And I remember my aunt saying at one point, who was a, it was a social worker, she said, think of it this way. Well, she she told a, another family member this because they were saying, "I don't know what to do. This is happening, you know, with with my husband and I." And she was concerned about what was happening, and and so she talked to my aunt about it. My aunt said, "You know, look at it this way: they're like 
two people in separate hospital beds, they are unable to help each other. And boy, was that a great image. Like we, and, and, and then a few years later, not long ago, I was in a book club and we read this book about, it was a, a fictional book, but it was about this couple who had lost a child and they were basically living separate lives, you know, living in the same house, but separate lives, both in pain. And, and in this book club discussion, I was brand new. Nobody knew who I was. They didn't know my story. So I didn't, I didn't say anything. But I thought it was really interesting that the discussion, in the discussion, one of the ladies said, well, I don't know why they didn't come together during this time. You know, why, why are they separating in their, in their pain instead of coming together and helping each other? And I wanted to say, I know why. I know why. <laughs> And, and, and I think that's um, maybe the misconception that somehow that, that we, we should be united in that experience. And I think there are, there are places when we become ignited, united, but men grieve very differently than women. Everybody grieves individually, differently, uniquely. We don't we don't understand our own grief, much less what somebody else is how somebody else is handling the grief, and um, yeah. So it's it so much of my coaching is around relationships for so many reasons that I could I've done whole podcasts and whole webinars on this. That we're we're so it's like somebody with a sunburn. You know, you go up and you pat them on the back, and they go ah. It, the person who's grieving, the person who's experienced a loss is in so much pain that anything triggers them. And so imagine two people in a lot of pain and all the triggering that's going on in that relationship. Oh, if we can be patient with each other and just stay in that place of commitment. Commitment is the key. And that's where I really, truly give so much credit to my husband because he stayed by my side, even though, even though there were moments where I was like, I want him to show up this way. I want him to do this. I want, you know, I, I had those things too, right? I, I still do. I still have those moments where I'm like, why isn't he showing up this way? Why isn't he doing it that way? We're all different. We're all going to show up differently. We're all going to go through our pain differently. We, we all have to, we have an opportunity to honor the other person's process and to just stay in commitment. <laughs> I'm not even going to say love. I'm going to say commitment <laughs> because when your emotions are so overwhelmed, sometimes it's the commitment we can access, not necessarily the, the feelings of love. That was a terrific segment. I love the visual of hospital beds. That's the reality of where you were. And that takes me to just what you said. We can't heal each other. We can't be each other's savior, but we can have common goals and commitment. And so mm -hmm. maybe, and then we, we eventually heal. <laughs> maybe we help each, heal each other a little bit along the way, but we're in different hospital beds. And, we're yeah. not, and so I love that vision. I love you coming back to physical analogies to understand a mental health <laughs> issue. I love the word commitment. And I think that gives hope to other couples say, yeah, we are committed. We want to make this marriage work. We do have that 
fundamental goal, but we are in different hospital beds right now, or we're in, yeah. and we need other resources than just each other. We can't heal each other. We can't always, maybe we can do helpful comments, supportive comments and be present, but sometimes we need the savior to heal our wounded heart and therapists and just time and a recognition of common goals. Right. Yeah. This, well, and there, and there's so much to live for. Not only to live for, there's so much to live to. Um, how do I say this? There's so many good reasons for the marriage to continue. Yeah. And I love your for point the marriage about, to live. I love that. And I love your point about statistics not being a self fulfilling prophecy. Um, and, you know, people will want to write. One of the themes of this podcast, listeners, as you know, is write your own story. And sometimes um, the statistics say, this is how you should write your story, or this is how it's going to turn out. And I think with, you know, we talk about that a lot in our church with Christ, write your story. And I think it's good to have people's voices and examples and help, but ultimately you and your husband wrote your own story and you didn't listen to the statistics and you found commitment. And I'm going to share well, a story. Well, I can tell you I listened to the statistics <laughs> for too long because that was another pain point. But I did learn over time that it didn't have to turn out that way, in the negative way. And I if your say. story did turn out in a divorce, I think, you know, Julie would, she has a lot of clients. That's the reality of their life. And yep. she would not want to say anything that makes you feel like you didn't, you've gone through a divorce. So I'm sure you know that space well and would provide a lot of empathy I, and understanding. I and sure do. <laughs> and it takes commitment from two people. True. So, and so if one person's not willing to stay in the commitment, then there's not a, uh, true. there's not a bond there. I want to share one story listeners. And I've shared this a couple of times. Um, and then I'd just like to turn over to Julie for any final comments. And please look to the show notes because we'll have all of Julie's, we'll have her website there, Instagram, a link to her book. But I think if you go to her website, which is if you remember one thing from the podcast without going to the show notes, everything's at buildalife, buildalifeafterloss.com. Just spelled the way I said it. And right. that'll get you to everything Julie's talking about. But one day I had a YSA come in and he is an army guy and he was in Afghanistan and bombed the Taliban and he was um, honored, you know, his charge as an army officer. So he felt at peace with that, but he knew that innocent people had died and he was pretty broken up about perhaps moms and children whose lives were, were lost. And in some ways he felt responsible for that. And I didn't have any words as I laid my hands on his head for a blessing of comfort, but then... Heavenly Father kind of took me to what I call the 40,000-foot level, the plan of salvation. And he said these words. He says, yes, um, mortality changed for some people in Afghanistan, but no one's eternal possibilities have changed. And listeners that are dealing with, you know, the loss of a loved one, that's true. <laughs> um, David and Carrie in your situation are gone. Their mortal life changed, but... I think we have to look, our doctrine can give us hope. It may not talk about the grief. It may, you may need to still work through the things that Julie's teaching us, but it may at least realize that everybody we've lost, their eternal possibilities haven't changed because of what happened in mortality. And that's not meant to minimize grief or be a platitude. It was just a helpful thing for me, um, the most tangible insight in the 40,000 foot level, the plan of salvation, as we're kind of in the middle of this three-act play. 
But I want to turn it back to you. You've been a terrific guest. I am, I've just felt impressed not to shorten this podcast and not to stick to, we usually stick to about, you know, 75 minutes. I just felt impressed. There are listeners that needed to hear some of these final segments that are just exactly what they've been looking for. And your voice, that's a voice of authenticacy. I can't say that word very well, is so needed. <laughs> my wife teased me because I can't say long words very accurately. And my kids know I can't spell <laughs> a single word. Um, but go ahead, Julie, for any final thoughts. Well, I, I would say that not only do we grieve some of the typical things that we think of, like death and um, even a career loss or a divorce or something like that. And and what gets us tripped up a lot of times is thinking that we, we have to grieve forever because the loss isn't going to be undone. You know, Carrie and David aren't coming back. And so sometimes we think in order to be okay, we need everything to go back to the way it was. And I would also just mention that grief is also also grieving the loss of expectations. And I have certainly had some experiences recently that have challenged my expectations. And I know that you, um, Richard, in this podcast, you do beautiful work of sharing people's stories and their, their growth experiences going through challenging relationship um, issues with whatever comes up that they think it should be one way and then it turns out it's a different way and then they have to somehow come to a feeling of understanding or being able to assimilate that change and i just offer i i, I was i was uh, i just offer that it's okay to grieve the expectations it's okay to experience the pain of things being different than what you expected and growing through the experience of growing your compassion, growing your love, growing your, um, growing your trust in Jesus Christ, growing your trust in, in life and in the plan. And that no matter what things look like right now, it's not the end. We're in the middle of our second estate. When we leave here, we will still be in our second estate. There's still time. There's so much hope. It, the hope is unbelievable. So whether you're grieving the death of a child or grieving the expectations that you had that are now different, Allow yourself to move through the grief and keep that hope alive. That even those things may look messy right now and not the way you expected, and you're still trying to figure out, and you're tr trying to navigate that. The most important piece is that we, we, we stay connected to the Spirit of God. We stay connected to the Spirit of Christ and that we love. And I think that is what I love most about what you do here, Richard. Thank you. There's a lot of people just like to come out of their microphones and give you a big hug, Julie. You have touched some people in a way that 
perhaps no other guest or no other podcast has done. Um, you have a really beautiful and unique and needed ministry. And thank you so much. I've personally been moved. You've helped me. Um, so well, thank, thank you. you it was an absolute delight and pleasure. I just, I love any opportunity mm-hmm. to talk about hope. I, so listeners, we will sign off. Um, this is Julie Clough from Tennessee and Richard Osser from Salt Lake signing off on another episode of Listen, Learn, and Love. <laughs>